Let me invite you to take your copies of God's Word and open once again to Mark chapter 13. Um, as promised, uh, we'll go back to Mark 13 and we'll finish out, hopefully, Lord willing, this chapter tonight. Tonight's going to be fairly practical. Um, uh, I say that it's going to be practical in that I'm going to ask you some tough questions. They're meant to be rhetorical questions. Uh, they're made for you to think and for me to think. I thought over these very seriously as as I studied this. And uh, I think there's some questions that we as a church, as we come to the close of another year and look at the beginning of a new year, there's some questions that we as a church maybe need to ask about how we're doing things and what are we doing and why are we doing things the way we are. And uh, uh, just I want to to challenge you with those tonight um, just as I was as we were singing that last hymn there um, just a reminder we will be here on Christmas morning we will not have Sunday school but we will be here for the morning service 1030 is our regular time that's when we'll be here and uh, we'll have a wonderful morning of singing those Christmas hymns uh, together and uh, I'll bring a brief message if that's possible for me to do um, and and uh, we'll, we'll celebrate Christmas together. We've purposefully held off singing those certain songs, certain hymns uh, around Christmas because the se- we've through the years we've sort of lost the season of Advent. The Advent season was really about waiting and longing for the coming of the Messiah. And we have started seemingly at the 4th of July now putting out Christmas decorations and, and all sorts of things. And we just have skipped over that whole part of history where uh, for thousands of years the world waited in anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. And so we've intentionally uh, throughout the month uh, put it off. But on Christmas morning we're going to celebrate. We're going to celebrate by singing those hymns together. So be here for that. Uh, Hopefully bring some family members with you. It'll be a wonderful time. Let's read this again, and then I'll dive back in, starting in verse 24. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven, from the fig tree. Learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. It's as if 
here, Jesus goes through all of this description. By the way, this is the longest answer that Jesus gives in response to one of his disciples' questions in, in his time with them. He spends more time here on this question when they ask him, when will these things be, than he does really on any one question throughout his entire time. And uh, he wants them to be prepared. I think we can't lose sight of the context here that he, for these three years, has been walking with these disciples, these that he called to himself, and he's been preparing them, showing them who he is, and preparing to turn this earthly ministry over to them to continue the work that he has both secured but also began in the building of his church and his people. And so I don't think we can lose that context. I think we have to remember that in doing this and spending all of this time answering when will these things be, he is preparing them for what's going to happen in just a matter of a couple of days. He will be arrested. He will be uh, ran through a mock trial um, that is illegal in numerous ways. He will be uh, beaten. He'll be mocked. He'll be spit upon. Uh, he will have the, the hair from his beard and his head pulled, um, pulled out, some of it. Uh, he will have that crown of thorns placed on his head and those thorns uh, pierce his brow. He will have nails driven through his hands and his feet and he will be hoisted up for the, the, the people to see. And he will hang there and he will die. He will be placed into a tomb and they will lose hope, many of them, until that morning when he comes out of the tomb. And he, they realize then that what he was telling them all along, he is going to make good on. That he would be raised from the dead, he would stay with them for 40 days or so, and then he would ascend back to be with his father. And he needs to prepare them for what they are going to endure in the coming days and months and years, let alone he wants to prepare us. You and I are not members of the twelve sitting there that day, but we sit, we sit here 2,000 years later and we read Jesus' words and we know that he was speaking to them and he was also speaking to us. And so that's why this morning we could look at that and we could say that his second coming will not be like his first and it will either be a time of great comfort or it will be a great time of calamity. And we find ourselves in one of those two categories. Um, and then tonight I simply have two more points that I want to pull out of this text for you. He, he begins, to, he kind of finishes up what he's got to say, the meat of what he has to say, um, as if anything Jesus said was ever less than meat. But he kind of finishes up and then he begins to illustrate. He gives these parables. He gives two, two parables here and I want to look at them. The first thing I want you to see tonight is there is a 100% chance of Jesus coming again. 100% chance. I remember when I was a kid growing up in East Tennessee, we got snow probably there more than, than people in South Carolina do on a regular basis. If you'll remember, it wasn't, uh, wasn't too long from now, last year, that we had a big snow here. But I remember when I was a kid, it was a time when I went over to my cousin's house Went to Sonny's house and spent the night, and, uh, and we went to bed, and we, we, we woke up the next morning, and they weren't even calling for snow, and we woke up, and it was just white everywhere. I mean, it was just blanketed everywhere, and we had the best time. We weren't prepared for it. We went out and 
and we didn't have any kind of shoes or clothes, but we just wrapped bags around our feet and all this and just went out and had a good time. But I also remember another time when the weatherman, before I went to bed, knowing I had to get up for school the next morning, said, there is a 100% chance of snow overnight, and there was accumulation involved. And I just knew when I went to bed, no school tomorrow. And I was all happy, and I went to bed. I think Mom and Dad let us stay up late because everyone was sure this thing was going to happen. And I remember being awakened by my mother in the morning and saying, is it time to go outside and play? No, it's time to go to school. There was no snow at all. And I was so mad at that weather forecaster. I thought, boy, if I knew where he lived, I'd go pay him a visit, you know. A 100% chance. Well, I want you to know that I'm not telling you that there is a 100% chance of Jesus coming again with the same confidence that that weather man predicted the snow. I'm telling you based on the authority of God's word. And he will come again. History has validated so much of what he has said. There are still things that will be fulfilled. But we can know, we can write it down that he will come again. It's 100% sure. Look at what he says here in verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, and he goes on. What he's doing here is he's, people get confused over this text and they say, well, wait a minute, what's he saying about the fig tree? What does the fig tree have to do with anything? Well, it really doesn't have to do, uh, it, it's, it's not, it's, he's not looking at the fig tree wanting to give us some symbol of something else. It's as if he just is there with his disciples explaining these things and he looks over and it being the time of year that it is, it, he looks and he sees these leaves already coming out on these fig trees. And he just says, look, it's just like the fig tree. Take a lesson from the fig tree. When you see those leaves pop out, you know summer is right around the corner. And it's simply an object lesson there. And he he is telling them that just as that is a sign of summer to come, these things that I have just told you about, they are also signs of what is coming. Just as leaves on the fig tree guarantee summer is around the corner, Just as after he leaves, those disciples will encounter the things of verses 3 through 13. They will encounter those things. They will encounter wars and rumors of war and famine and earthquakes and all those sort of things. They They would endure those. They would endure the destruction of the temple. If you remember, that's what the question was originally about. It was about when will this temple be destroyed? If you remember, they walked out and they, the disciples said to Jesus, do you see these great stones? Look at them. It's beautiful. And Jesus said, not one of them will be left on top of the other. And that's what they would have to endure. And he wants them to know in pointing them to that, that when he left, when he left in the mid-30s A.D., that in 67 to 70 A.D., when they were going through the destruction of the temple then, he wanted them to be reminded that they would endure that as well and that that would be a sign that he would also come again one day. 
just as they would have to endure those things. And just as we today, the church, has to endure the things of verses 3 through 13 also. We have to endure the birth pains of the world. We have to endure persecution in the world. It's all a sign that what he said is true and it will come to pass. He will come again. These are meant to show us that he will indeed come again. Now, here are the questions that I want to ask you. I want you to not answer out loud, but I want you to think through these. Do we live like we believe this? Do you live like you believe that he's coming again? Do you live like you, could, you, you believe it could be at any moment? Do our actions show that we believe it? Or do our actions show something different? I think probably for a lot of people, a lot of professed Christians, their actions don't exactly tell the story that we're expecting Jesus to come at any moment. One of the things that I, I thought about when I, when I was thinking through this question is, uh, how many churches are spending millions and millions of dollars on themselves? When there is a world that is yet to hear the gospel. They are dying every day. And the reality is, the Bible says that, that those who die without Christ, they really do go to a place called hell. And I thought, you know, we say, not just us, but the, the church at large we say that we believe this, that we believe that one day Jesus is coming again and one day he will judge the world. And one day those who are his will worship around his throne and that those who are not will be cast into outer darkness. We say that we believe in evangelism, but you look around and you see buildings going up. And we sit in a building tonight. It's a nice building. But we we, we see churches spending money on themselves left and right. I'm not saying that it's sinful for us to be here. We kind of built this out of necessity. When, when your building burns to the ground and you have nowhere to meet, you build, build back so that you have a place to gather. But I think there are probably churches all around us that are building and spending money on themselves to sinful levels. Would you agree? We say we believe it, but oftentimes our priorities show something different. And then I, I asked myself this question. I looked at verse 27, and uh, 27 is not part of our text tonight, but it was this morning. In verse 27, he says that he will send out his angels to gather his elect. And we talked about how comforting that is for believers, that if you're a child of his, that there's nowhere that you can go that he will lose track of you. He will never forget you. You will not be left. He will gather you to himself. And that's it's incredibly comforting. But have we drawn so much comfort from that notion that it has caused us to lose compassion for others? Do we at times take the attitude of, well, you know, I'm okay. I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm good with that. I don't know that we would ever voice that, that, you know, I really don't care if anyone else comes to know the Lord. I'm not saying that's, that's the way you think or I think, 
But I think our actions sometimes show that we're more concerned about our own comforts in this world than we are about reaching those. Um, If we draw so much comfort that it cares us, it causes us to lose concern for others who are outside of the gospel right now, then here's what's at stake or here's maybe the, the motivator for that. I think we've lost sight or we've misunderstood his worth. Oftentimes we make the gospel about us. We make the gospel about us being saved and us being forgiven and us getting to go to heaven and us not having to go to hell. But the reality is, if our motivation for evangelism and sharing the gospel is that in and of itself, that will produce evangelism like what we're seeing. But if our understanding is that he alone is worthy of the worship of all people. And that it's our responsibility to share the gospel so that they become worshipers. That's a whole different story. If he becomes our motivation, it's different than saying, I want my neighbor to not have to go to hell. Do you understand that? A little, little backwards thinking, but I think, I think it fits there. I think we fall into that at times. I love John Piper's quote, and this illustrates it. John Piper said, missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. You, think about it. There will come a day when missions will cease to exist. When is that day? What? That's right. When, when, the, when the people from every people group, from every tribe and nation and tongue are gathered around his throne. And what are they doing there? They're worshiping him. So right now, that doesn't exist to the extent that it will one day. And that's why missions still exist today. Evangelism, for a lot of years, and I'm on a tangent and on a rant here tonight, but for a long time, evangelism, in at least in Southern Baptist Convention circles in the South, has existed not for the glory of God, but for the glory of us. It's so that we could build big churches and fill them up and stroke our ego and brag to one another, I go to such and such church. I pastor such and such church. And this is illustrated every time I go to a convention. And praise God, I don't hear it as much as I once did. But it used to be the number one question when pastors would get together is, how many are you running now? And that question is motivated out of, My glory. I want to hear that you're not doing as well as I am. I want to feel better about myself. And what we have to do is we have to understand that one day he's coming again. One day he will judge the nations. One day we will be gathered around his throne. But until that day, we have an opportunity to increase the amount of worshipers there in heaven. And that should be our motivation. Um, The second point tonight is this. There's a 100% chance of Jesus coming again. Secondly, God leaves us in the dark, so we'll keep looking for the light. God leaves us in the dark, so we'll keep looking for the light. Now, hear me. I'm not saying that God has left us or abandoned us. We, We would all quote the scripture, I'll never leave you or forsake you. But here in verses 32 uh, down through... um, down to through 37, uh, 
he says there, nobody knows the day or the hour. No one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Be on guard. Keep awake. And the point there, I think, is that he's left us, not left us and abandoned us, but he's left us in the dark as far as knowing when it will happen. If we don't know when he will come, then it will keep us looking for him to come. We'll keep checking. We'll keep looking. Um, as a kid, we could all probably go back to we were kids and we were at home and we knew mom and dad or so-and-so was going to come and we didn't know exactly when they were going to come, but, uh, but we were probably up to something that we shouldn't have really been into, but we'd keep going out to check. I remember as a kid, I knew exactly what mom's car sounded like. I could, I could differentiate mom's car or dad's car from every other car that lived in our neighborhood. Just the sound. I was good. In fact, I was reminded of this this week when my son said, I know what your car sounds like, Dad. I know what your car sounds like, Mom. I could, and, and how do I know that? Because I was listening. I was listening intently because I was up to stuff that I shouldn't be into. That's not the reason why, you know, that's, that's horrible for me to admit, but that's, that's what drove me to it. I'm not saying that that should be the picture of us now, but if we're here not knowing when he will come back, it will keep us going and looking looking for him to come. The timing is not for us to know, but the work is ours to do. The timing is not ours to know, but the work is ours to do. Uh, turn, if you will, back to, I want to show you the parallel passage in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 37. First of all, the timing is not ours to know. In Matthew's parallel version of this, um, in verse 37, he says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, stay awake. He says, the timing is not for us to know. Can you imagine living in the day of Noah? So many saw him building that ark. Wondering, what in the world is Noah up to now? What is he doing? The Bible says that he preached for 120 years, that Noah's out there and he's preaching. He's telling them, look, God's going to destroy the earth. Noah's off his rocker. Look at him. I mean, he's out there with the, with the wood and the hammer and he's got his sons out there. And Look at what they're doing. And they just ignored him and made fun. And they went back to marrying and drinking and having a good time. And suddenly it began to rain. And the earth was destroyed. And so it will be in the day when Christ comes again. The timing is not ours to know. But the work is ours to do. Look at verse 45 in Matthew 24. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his, his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and 
eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour when he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The work is ours to do. Here, he says, the one who is found faithful, he describes him. And I, I couldn't help but as I came to this and reading our text tonight, it's like a man who goes on a journey and leaves his servant or his slaves in charge and gives them the task to do and instructs them to stay awake, stay alert, keep at the task, for you do not know when your master will come. He gave them a job to do. Jesus here is pointing to that it's not, it's not the point for us to get mired in all of the details of when this will happen. We hear this periodically. Yesterday, uh, getting ready to head out the door, uh, heading to uh, the District 5 Christmas party that we had. And knowing I had, I had that, there was the funeral for Donna Harrison. My son had a basketball game. It was a busy morning. And lo and behold, a car pulls down my driveway and two young boys get out dressed in suits and they come walking up to the front door. And uh, the, the boy he couldn't have been more than about 12 years old. He was very polite. He said, um, sir, we're just going around door to door sharing scripture with people. And he said, if you'll notice in Matthew 24. And boy, I thought that's exactly where I am. That's where I have been for, you know, three weeks now. Matthew 24. He said, in Matthew 24, it says that no man will know the hour when he will come again. And he said, sir, a lot of people think that in 2012, the world's going to come to an end. But if you look right here in this literature, and he pulled out the watchtower Jehovah's Witness track. And I didn't handle it well. I didn't have time. I was busy. I was on my way out the door. And I said, I said so you're Jehovah's Witness. I said, I'm sorry, but I'm a Baptist pastor. I'm not going to be interested in taking any of your literature. It's kind of a busy morning. Appreciate your time, though. I wish I'd have spent more time with it. But the reality is those, those boys are right. In that matter, they're right that the world is caught up in the timing of the thing. Movies are made. Books are written. Men go on TV and, and pronounce that this is the day, this is the hour when everything will come to an end. People buy into it. They, they lose their minds. They sell everything they have. They quit their jobs. They go off and they just, they just wait, sit and wait and look. And that's not the point. This Herald Camping that just a few weeks ago predicted that Jesus was coming in this, on this day and this hour, and when it didn't happen, came back and said, well, I made a miscalculation. It's going to be this day and this hour. And he missed that one too. And if you look back in history, he had missed several others in the past. Anyone who tells you they know the time, they're wrong. They're deceived. And they are deceiving many others. It's blasphemous. Jesus himself here says, no man knows the time. Not the angels. He says, not even the Son of Man. It's only, only the Father knows. And some have, have used that verse and said, look, this means that Jesus himself wasn't really God. How could he be God if he didn't know the time? Well, all of that's wrapped up in the fact that he came to earth and took on flesh. In his humanity, he didn't know the time. He fully identified with us. But that's what Jesus here is saying is that's not the point. The point is not for you to get wrapped up and mired in the details of when this thing will come, when I will come again. The point is to do what I've told you to do. 
to be awake, be alert, be faithful. So I couldn't help but when I came to that and I read that parable of him saying it's like this servant, this, this man leaving his servants with a task to do, I couldn't help but to ask, what is our work? What is our work as a church? Now, as I thought about it, I think the answer is pretty clear. The answer is that we would preach to the elect. If there's coming a day when he's going to send the angels out to gather those elect, I think our task is to preach the gospel to the elect. You say, whoa, 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 you're using that word elect again. We don't like that word elect again. I can't help it. The Bible uses that word. Let me, let me just explain a little bit or go a little further. Do we know who the elect are? No. We have no clue who the elect are. Are they marked in any way? Are they identifiable? They wear a certain marking on their forehead? They have a certain stripe up their back, as Charles Spurgeon talked about? No. There's nothing. There's no way for us to identify them. And so people get hung up in saying that when, when we start talking about election, we're saying that, that we only preach to certain people. No, 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 no. We don't know who the elect are. So what's our task? It's to preach. Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel to everyone. How will they hear unless they have someone tell them? That's our task. Go there for and make disciples of all nations. We're to preach to all nations. And those whom God calls to himself will come. It's not up to us. Does that take the pressure off? Aren't you glad you don't have to have, you don't have a quota? You don't you don't have a certain amount that you have to bring in to the fold? You're not having to dress up on Saturdays and go knock on doors and say in 2012 people think the world's going to come to an end. Let me show you what it says in our in our literature here. Aren't you glad you don't have to do that? That what we do instead is we we preach freely of grace, not having to earn anything, but because we have been brought in, we preach. That's our task. That's our job, and that's what we are to do. But what do we find ourselves often doing? Oftentimes, churches find themselves doing a lot of other stuff besides preaching. Haven't we, through the years, been guilty of just being busy? Keeping people busy and keeping them um, out of trouble? I spent a lot of years in youth ministry. And uh, if I heard it once, I heard it a thousand times. Someone would, when, when we would have these events or we'd have these things at church, we'd have fifth quarters and lock-ins, and which I hate, by the way. Lock-ins, I think, are of the devil. If you've ever spent all night long with, with about 30 or 40, you know, Seventh and eighth graders, you'll understand what I'm saying. You know, when they're pulling folding tables out and using it as sleds going down the stairs in the church, and you know, you're trying to herd cats and get them back in, it's of the devil, okay? Let me just tell you. But we have these things, and adults in the church would say to me, Boy, I'm, I'm so glad you have these things. I'm so glad they're coming. At least it keeps them out of trouble. And I think that's the, that's the weakest excuse for us to do anything. That I've ever heard. Keeps them out of trouble. Is that what we're really after? Is just keeping kids out of trouble? Is that all we're about? Is, is preaching moralism and trying to say, you be good. 
Like my Aunt Wilma, every time she would see me, see me, now you be a good boy, you hear? Is that what we're to be telling our kids? No. You don't need to be just doing things, just to be doing things to keep people busy and out of trouble. What we need to be doing is preaching the gospel, making disciples. Um, I could go on on that, but I, I think we've been guilty of uh, of that a whole lot, of been just making people busy and uh, just doing those things. Another question that I want to ask you, just rhetorically, don't answer this, but think about it seriously. Would you want Jesus to return right now? No, I think I think I'd say yes, I want him to return because I know that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And his return means the the end of sin and suffering and death and all those things. But if I step back from that and I I look at this passage and I take it seriously when he says, don't be found asleep. In looking at what we're doing as a church or churches in America in general are doing or what you are giving your life to on a daily basis outside of when you're gathered with other believers, would you want him to come? As I heard this as a boy, I remember the only way I ever heard this preached was. Don't be doing anything that you wouldn't want Jesus to come back and catch you doing. Don't ever be caught that way. It was always it was always taught from this this, I guess, perspective of just be good all the time. Be moral. Don't be immoral. Do things that you'd want him finding you doing. And and in one sense, that's great. That was that's a good teaching. We ought to strive for those things. But I don't think that's the main point of the passage. The main point of the passage is not simply avoid sin. Be moral. I think the main point of the passage is there's coming a day when he's going to be coming back and he's giving us he's given us a task to do. And it's not just be good. It's preach the gospel. And how many of us would say. Monday through Friday. If Jesus came back today, I'd be pleased. I'd be pleased with how I've preached the gospel this week. See, it's not just me that's a preacher. All of us. We're believers. We're all called to be preachers of the gospel. You have people that you live next to or work around or they're members of your family. Christmas will provide you a wonderful opportunity to to present the gospel. Jesus were to come back, would you say, well, I'm just pleased with how I've shared the gospel? In one sense, we can be uh, pious and say, you know, well, I don't think we'll ever be pleased with how much we share the gospel. But let's just get real for a second. If we were all sharing the gospel the way we've been told to share the gospel and making disciples and taking that with as much seriousness as we should, we would not have to beg people to come to church. We would not be sitting here on Sunday night with, and I'm so thankful you're here, but we would not be here with just a sprinkling of people. If we were all sharing the gospel the way he's told us to share the gospel, there would be many, many more that are coming to know the Lord. Would you want him to return now, knowing what you're currently giving your life to? As a church, just think about this. 
Are we confident that we are giving our effort, our time, our money, our plans, etc., to the right things? We look at 2012 coming in and what we're planning to do. Are we confident that that's what we should be doing? Or are there things that we're just simply perpetuating because we've always done it that way? This is serious. If we're if we're going to take the word of God serious, then we must ask these questions. If we are not confident that these that we are doing those right things, spending money in the right places, putting our efforts in those areas, then if we don't change some things so that we are ready, what excuse will we give? Because we can't say we didn't know. We can't say that. We won't be able to say that. And, and look, the, the point of this, I, I'm not trying to throw guilt on you. I mean, this, is, this is heavier than this morning was. The reason I said what I did at the end of the service this morning is because everybody looked back at me. I stood there in the, in the response time. And, and I, I think I remember as a kid, I, Joe Wren was my pastor, Joe pastors down in Somerville, South Carolina now, and he baptized me, and he would stand at the front of the, of the sanctuary during that invitation time, and he would look out at the people, and, uh, and he just had this sort of sad look on his face, and I remember his daughter one time saying to, to my sister, they were good friends, is, my dad just looks like he's so disappointed that no one's coming, and, and I felt that this morning. I didn't feel, I, I wasn't disappointed. I was, I mean, yes, I obviously want, I want people to respond to the, to the Word of God. I want them to respond to the invitation of God's grace. But I don't want you to ever think that what I do is dependent on, you know, the response in the aisle. Anybody can walk an aisle. And as I looked out at you, I, I almost felt this sort of dejection, like, you know, wow. Well, it's one more Sunday. We'll get him next time. You know, and that's why I came back up here as your pastor and I said, I want you to know it's not about entertaining you. It's not about us producing this response. It's about us being faithful to what he's called us to do. Preach the gospel. Preach the word in season, out of season, when it's popular, when it's not popular, when it's easy, when it's hard. Preach the gospel. Make disciples. And that's what we've been called to do. I don't want tonight, though, to come and, and give you this guilt trip and throw all this weight on you, this dump. You know, if, if we're not doing what we should do and we don't change things, then what excuse are we going to give? Look, still, in Christ, His righteousness has been imputed, given to us. He has taken all of our sin. But the reality is, the Bible speaks in Revelation that in the end, that those who are outside of Christ will stand before the great white throne judgment. They will be judged in their own sin apart from Christ because they rejected him. They will feel the wrath of God. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, we will not stand before the great white throne. Here's what the Bible refers to as the Bema Seat. And Bema Seat is a picture of what they used in those Mediterranean or the Olympic Games where they would be brought forward and um, they would be awarded different prizes for their competition. 
the picture is or the, the reality is that when we come before God in that Bema seat, that there is not going to be any condemnation. We don't have to worry that God's going to say, you're not, you, you weren't as good as you thought you were. You're out. You know, God's not going to do that because he doesn't see us in ourselves. We have trusted in Christ's work alone and he's fully satisfied in that. But we will stand before him and what we've done for him in the body, what we've done for him in the flesh will be judged in what has been done. Pure motive for his glory will last. And what has not will be consumed and done away with. So we we can't have this um, false piety that says, you know what? Hey, we're all good in Christ. No condemnation, nothing to worry about. In one sense, that's true. But the other side of that is we must also do everything we can with what we've been given. This life is an opportunity to live it to the glory of God. And that's what we must do. There's coming a day when he will come back and we will give an account. There's a 100% chance of Jesus coming again. God leaves us in the dark, so we will keep looking for the light. Keep looking for the light. Wouldn't it be great if Christmas morning Jesus came again? Wouldn't it be something to say? I mean, just, I mean, yeah, that he's, he's here. And history has come to its appointed end. That he followed through on his word. Well, that's not simply just a pipe dream. It may not be Christmas morning. But he will come again. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you, God, for your word. And God, thank you for it being what we need. Lord, I've heard so many stories today about, about how your word seems to hit us right where we are. And God, I, I talk to people and, and they've heard something totally different than um, what I intended to say it wasn't the main point of the sermon, but, but something off to the side, just in saying in passing, God, was what they needed to hear. Lord, that's no testimony to me, God. That's testimony to you. You are loving, benevolent, heavenly Father. And God, we thank you that you care for us, that you are conforming us to the image of Christ. Lord, we, we pray that you, knowing that you will continue, God, we pray that we would submit to you, that we would not fight you on that, God, that, that we would not choose to do our own thing and go our own way, but we would be obedient. And God, that we would understand increasingly day by day that you are all together wise. You are omnipotent. You are just. You are loving. You are true and you are merciful and you are God, everything that we need. God, I pray that increasingly that you would become the treasure of our lives. God, that we would stop pursuing all of the other junk. And God, that we would live as if we truly do believe that one day you're coming again. That you will judge the world. That we will be gathered in to you and around your throne. We will sing your praises throughout all of eternity. But God, I pray that you would give us a, a heavy realization that Every single day is an opportunity to preach the gospel, to do what you've left us here to do, 
God, I pray that you would use us to bring others into your kingdom. God, use not just us as a church in some vague way, but God, use the individual believers that are here tonight. Use them in lives around them in divine appointments as they step out in faith. God, we pray this for your glory and your glory alone. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great